Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is of interest. Um, you know, we got through Easter. That was all very nice. But now it's tax season. So let's have a good financial topic for the joy of, of tax season tonight. Uh, well, it brings up a couple of questions. Set this up a little bit here. Uh, first of all, um, there's an interesting little discrepancy which caught my attention, which is that in the Old Testament, it's repeatedly taught not to charge interest. If you loan money, don't charge interest. And we'll look at the nuances of how this is expressed. And even in the New Testament, you have Jesus saying things like lend hoping for nothing in return and this kind of thing. So it's quite surprising in Matthew's parable of the talents, and there's a similar story about Minas in Luke, in which uh, the person is given some talents to trade with and ex the master expects a return. And when the person doesn't deliver a return, the master says, well, at least you should have taken it to the bankers and gotten some interest. Like, what's wrong with you? You didn't earn interest on your money. And it's like, wait a minute. The Old Testament just told me not to do that. Don't earn interest. And now I'm being chided in the New Testament for not earning interest. What's going on there? And the deeper question, a couple of different questions that are occupying my attention tonight are the general sense of what makes the word holy. If the word says something about interest rates, is that a holy approach to interest rates or, or whatever? Where does the holiness lie? And also simply, what do you do with a contradiction? Like what about apparent contradictions in scripture or the ways to reconcile these things? And what is this teaching really about? And I thought this might be of interest to you this evening. <laughs> All right, shall we open with a prayer? <laughs> Let's do that, good friends. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us this evening, Lord, and help us to understand your Word, the message of your love, your truth that's encoded within it. Amen. Amen. Great to be with everybody. Sending love to those of you out there online and. Good job. Almost getting the audio, forgot to turn that on, sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, here in the room, and uh, such a blessing to be with everybody. So, uh, reward, there are a couple of different words that we'll bump into here. One is the idea of interest. So we get that, and I wanted to do a little linguistic thing here at the beginning, uh, just because I'm a word nut, but you have the word interest it's a hate to use another pun but it's an interesting word um, uh, for those of you who know latin you may see here and even those who don't that it has an inter in it and it has an est in it inter simply means among like if you had inter whatever like internal this or that or or things that are, are between two different things this means between and est means is so Originally, the idea is just that it was something from the Latin verb that you had a share in. And don't we still use it that way a little bit, that if you have an interest 
in, in mining or you have, have a share in this or that or whatever that's, that's, that's called interest. When there are, for some reason I hear that word a lot when there are um, hurricanes, they say people who have interests in the Seychelles or you know, stuff like that, I mean, like you, you have business or you have something you're concerned about there. So that literally means there's a share. It is among different people. But over time, uh, about the 18th century, this came to mean also that the way we use it more, that it's some, some passion or something that excites you or is it something you pay attention to. And because it had to do something with shares, it also came over time to mean that, you, that it's the share that you get from, from lending money or, or whatever. There's some interest that comes in. The other word that we're looking at is usury, a wonderful word. And uh, it can be simply defined as interest, but it's also defined as exorbitant interest or like an illegal rate of, you know, it's charging too much uh, on, a, on a loan. And you can see there, can you not, that US, uh, and that USU is another Latin root that has to do with use. And what it is, is like it's, you could translate it use-based. So like if you gave your money to somebody, there's a use-based bracket fee or something, you know, because, because you used the money, then you owe this usury that, that comes back. And there are lots of other words. When you think about it, Scripture has a lot of material about merchants and trading and profit and gain and reward and, you know, just a, a lot of things like this. I want to just focus on this one issue of interest tonight, but, but there's a lot in Scripture about it. So let's dive in. There, there are also words like gain and extortion and things like that. Let's dive into Exodus 22, and I want to set this up a little bit too. Um, the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, and the, um, uh, the experience of reading the Old Testament is kind of strange if you go through chapter by chapter, because you're reading along, and from the very beginning you're reading fascinating stories. The creation story, and you know, Cain kills Abel, and then this happens and that happens. Well, interesting things are happening. There are some genealogies and so on. Most of it is stories, stories about Joseph and then the Exodus and all this drama and everything's building and building. And then it builds to this amazing crescendo when the Ten Commandments are given, where there's thunder and lightning and, and smoke on the mountain and there's a, there's a cordon to prevent people from going up lest they die and, and all this. And the Ten Commandments come forth in Exodus chapter 20. And then almost immediately, the text just shifts completely into a whole series of seemingly, I don't know, some of them seemingly fairly minor little laws and principles. They're fascinating, but it's like, okay, if you uh, kill a thief who's in your house, the punishment that you face depends on whether it was nighttime or during the day. It's a diff if it's at night, no problem. If it's during the day, big problem. You killed somebody, you know. Uh, the interesting little, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that's a trivial thing, but uh, if someone borrows your animal and then it dies while the person has borrowed your animal, 
then if you can show remains of the animal, then it's handled in one way. But if you can't, there's a different rule that applies. You know, there's just, and all of us, you know, we are charging along with these exciting stories and all of a sudden we've, we've gone into like reading the phone book. You know, I mean, it's, you're, you're reading all these laws one after the other after the other. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand what's, what's going on in these laws. And in the midst of these laws is this. So here we are in Exodus 22, which is a bunch of these laws. And let's read verses 25 to 27 there. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Okay, now the, the restriction that's put on there is poor people. That's interesting. So don't charge poor people interest, okay? Go on. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So that's a, a related law, but the main thing there is verse 25. It's just like, hey, if you lend money to poor people, don't charge interest. Let's turn to the right and go to Leviticus, which comes up next, and I want to go to Leviticus 25. Leviticus is named for all these laws. Laws and, you know, chapters and chapters and books and books of laws that come after you get to the... I think it's cool, but it's just a shock when you've been reading this vibrant story and all of a sudden you're into a rule book uh, with all these very specific rules. It's kind of, you know, strange when you first enter into it. Uh, 25 verses 35, is that what I want? To 37, try, try that. If one of your brethren becomes poor... Oh, there we go again, poor, okay and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Yes, right. So if you lend him food, don't, don't, charge something in return, you know, like when it's paid back in some sense, don't, don't put anything on top of there. Again, the parameter though is poor. It doesn't define when do you, when do you become poor, uh, but it's a pretty strongly worded rule there. Let's go to the right through numbers into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23. But you could get the impression from reading these passages that maybe the charging of interest wasn't such a great thing. Look at verses 19 and 20 there in Deuteronomy 23. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. Oh, now this doesn't even say poor, does it? This is more kind of blanket, right? It's your brother. It's just someone in the whole extended family type of thing. Uh, don't do that. And it's got four different kinds, doesn't it there? Uh, or food. three different kinds or something. Right, right. Money, food, and anything, anything that's loaned. Okay, go on. To a foreigner, you may charge interest. Oh. But to your brother, you shall not charge interest. 
that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Okay, and this raises a little bit that question of where the holiness is. Like it's definitely God is saying, hey, you know, if you want to prosper in the Holy Land, don't do this. And interesting that uh, the third time that we've heard this rule, it throws in, oh, well, really, let's apply that to everybody in the country. But any foreigner, go ahead and, and charge interest, but not to, you know, members of the clan or the tribe or the you know, overall group that you're part of. Okay, now I want you to turn to the right. We'll go through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles is the tension building. Then we get Ezra and Nehemiah. I want to go to Nehemiah chapter five because there's an interesting little story from if I have this right, if I'm remembering the story right. The children of Israel have been kept in a kind of um, financial bondage and servitude to other people, and now they've been set free, but there's another issue here. Let's pick up at verse 1 and go all the way down to verse 12. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Oh. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Did you know that scripture talks about mortgages? That's fun too, isn't it? So they've actually mortgaged the lands, vineyards, and houses to be able, because there's this famine going on. And so that, what do you do, right? Take out a loan against the value of your house so that you can buy this food. Go on. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So the famine has been so <coughs> severe that all the, you know, their own kids are, have been sort of sold into bondage to try to cover the debt. They're going into debt to pay the tax that they owe. And so, uh, what does our hero say here? Our he hero being Nehemiah. Oh, I believe so. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And by the way, I just love the language of the old King James at the beginning of this verse. Uh, I forget what you had there. Like he did After some deep serious thinking. Thought, serious yeah. thought. It says, I consulted with myself. I, I just enjoy that language. Mm. Go on. And I said to them, okay, he called a great assembly. Yes, he did. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Yeah, so you see, they bought back their relatives who had been sold to the nations. Go on. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Mm. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Oh boy. 
You don't like to hear that, especially not in the Bible. What you're doing is not good. Okay. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Mm. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Yes. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Oh, interesting. So this is like, don't, don't charge them interest and then so give them back everything that you got and like a, a penalty, isn't it? Like a give them back 1% on top of it. Uh, at, you know, give their lands back and their vineyards and their olive yards. So don't take that against these loans. Anyway, I just wanted to dip in there for a minute because it's another whole story about a real problem where it was kind of bankrupting the nation to be charging each other interest on these things and losing their, their children, their land, and everything to this issue. Let's go into the middle of the Bible to the Psalms, which come up as you head to the right pretty soon. Go to Psalm 15. Let's just read the whole of this little brief Psalm. And it's got a description of what a good person is like. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Mm. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, mm. but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And then drum roll. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Yes, so who's going to abide in the Lord's tabernacle? In other words, who's going to be saved? It will be people who treat others this way. And in the list of things not to do is not to charge usury, you know, not to charge too much uh, for, um, you know, any kind of a loan that you've made. Okay, good. Let's turn to the right and go to Proverbs. Want to go to Proverbs chapter 28. Uh, let's do verses 6 to 8. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Okay. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Okay, and then drum roll. One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. It's an interesting little phrase there, but what I gather is going on at the end there is that if you do this, if you sort of gouge and you build up this increase by overcharging and all that, you're gathering it for someone else who pities the poor. In other words, your money's gonna be transferred from you to somebody else who has compassion on the poor. You're not gonna keep those funds. Okay, good. We see a theme here. 
Let's go to the right through Isaiah to Jeremiah. Want to go to Jeremiah 15. Interesting little mention in Jeremiah here. Uh, Jeremiah is, seems to be feeling a little self-pity or something. He's going through a difficult time. And look at what he says in 15 verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest, nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. Yes, and in the Old King James, it adds in a little, yet every one of them curses me. In other words, hey, I'm doing the right thing. I'm not I'm not lending money at interest. I'm not borrowing at interest to situations that can make, you know, either party upset. Uh, I'm not doing those things. And yet everybody still curses me. They're still upset with me. So it seems like, again, it's painted in a negative light. Okay, uh, we're coming to the end of the Old Testament references. Turn to the right. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Hmm. I think we'll read it some length in here. How about verses 5 to 17? Okay. Let's see what this says here. Ezekiel 18. And this is a very interesting chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters. And what it's about is salvation, which has come up a couple of times in those other readings so far tonight. And it's about the fact that if you, if you do... Like, it's particularly about this idea, like if you're a good person and then your child is a bad person and then their child's child is a good person, you know, like who, do you get punished because your kid is bad or does your kid get, is it good because you were good? Or like what, how does that whole thing work? And so listen to these examples here. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right. This would be a good person. If he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, mm. nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity. Okay. If he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge. Oh, okay. Has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. Yes, this is almost like Matthew 25, where it talks about the naked and in prison and you visit me and all that. If he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. And I'll just hit pause there for a second. Isn't it so clear again that the exacting of this interest or usury is iniquity, right? You know, he didn't charge interest. Instead, he withdrew his hand from iniquity. Go on. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, then he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Okay, that's the basis of salvation, contrary to some rumors that are going around, that the way that you live is actually the basis of, 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 of salvation. And one of the examples there is how you treat these financial interactions with people. Okay, let's read about the bad person. That's always more interesting. <laughs> If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, 
robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, mm. lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So, okay, you have a good father, you have a bad son. Well, the bad son's bad deeds are what condemn that son. Okay, how about if he has a good son? If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Okay, there you go. So even though Genesis would give you the idea that the sins of the fathers are visited on the next generations, third and fourth generation, this says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Each generation gets according to their own due the way that they have lived. And interesting, the three times in that story, it's quite repetitious, and every time the exacting of interest is one of these negative things and not doing it. And it almost sounded the way we say things now. He's withdrawn his hand from the poor, like you don't have your hand out saying, come on, you know, give me that. No, the good thing is to withdraw your hand. Okay, Ezekiel 22. Coming to the end of this, good friends, dear and patient friends. 22. Oh, let's do verses 6 to 16, shall we? 6 to 16. Look... The princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. Uh-oh, that's not good. In you they have made light of father and mother. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the, father, the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst, they commit lewdness. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. Oh, there it is. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Oh, look at how clear that is. You've forgotten me. So interesting, these similar types of things in these lists of evils, aren't they? Eating on the mountains and defiling people in various ways. And, and then there's this, this usury and increase and profit and so on. Go on. Behold, therefore, I beat my fists at the dishonest profit which you have made. Oh. And at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Okay. Can your heart endure, or can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, 
disperse you throughout the countries and remove your filthiness completely from uh -huh. you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so the Lord is going to deal with the situation. And let's go to the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke. For the last of these type passages, I want to go to Luke 6. It's the third of the Gospels. 632-36. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Here it is. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Aha, uh -huh. so what should we do instead? But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Mm. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Very familiar New Testament teaching about loving our enemies and doing good, lend hoping for nothing in return. And so you do hope for something. You hope for this heavenly reward, but it's not that you're getting this reward from other people for what you're doing. So it's kind of interesting that in Matthew 25, let's turn to the left and go back to Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, as I said at the beginning, the teaching seems to be so shockingly different. You know, there was a lot of passages about interest and usury, and they were all singularly negative. And there were some parameters of like if it's a poor person or, you know, if it's a member of your own clan or something like that, okay, fine. But still, it was generally treated as a blanket thing. Let's look at Matthew 25, verses 14. I guess all the way down to 30. This is the parable of the talents. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Uh -huh. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Yes, and uh, I believe what I've been told is that each talent is 75 pounds. Like 75 pounds of gold would be worth a fair chunk of change. Wouldn't it? Just one of those talents would be a, worth a lot of money. And so there's five of these, two of these. So it, it's a lot that he gives to people to trade with. Okay, go on. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Oh, now is that bad? Are we led to expect that that's a bad thing that he did? He went out and he traded with those five talents. He made five more talents. Is that evil? Go on. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. They both doubled their money. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Ah, very important detail. He dug in the ground and he hid his Lord's money. Okay, go on. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Okay, good. 
So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Yes, you were faithful with a few million dollars. I'll place you over something really important. And, uh, and isn't it interesting that this master is depicted as expecting a return on this money? He's happy with the person who got him a return. In fact, double the money. It's great. He was away for quite a while, came back, got double the, the, the money. And he said, this is, this is great. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's no hint in there that that was a bad thing to do. Go on. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. Hmm, guess what he's going to say. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Okay, and then here it comes. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now, isn't that significant in this whole context of talking about interest and increase and everything? He said, I knew you were a hard person who was going to look for some, you just don't, you don't just want your money back. You want some kind of return on it. I knew that's the way that you are. So what did he do as a result? And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. That's just so baffling because according to the Old Testament, this would be a perfect outcome. Like you lend them the money, you get the same amount back without interest, and we're all good. And yet here it's a problem. You know, this is a foolish servant, right? Go on. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that, that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. Oh, really? And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. You should have put it in the bank and earned some interest. How stupid of you not to give me, you know, to try to just give me my money back without any interest on it. What are you doing, you wicked and lazy servant? Yes, go on. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Oh, so grossly unfair. Yes, go on. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And? And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now wait, unprofitable servant? Then is everybody in the Old Testament unprofitable? Like, what's going on here? You know? I thought the whole idea was, hey, just give them the money, help them out, and don't expect anything in return. What is this sudden like, oh, no, you're unprofitable. I'm going to cast you into outer darkness. You did it all wrong. You just gave me the same amount I gave you. You didn't earn interest. You didn't trade it. You didn't get anything with it. You're wicked and lazy. Wow. Weird. You wouldn't expect that with all the other passages we just read, would you? How about Luke? Let's go over to Luke, and we'll read a similar story in Luke 19. In the interest of time, we probably don't have to read this whole thing. 
but he calls 10 servants in verse 13 there. So this is 19 starting at, I don't know, verse 12. Therefore, and, and in verse 13, he has 10 servants, gives them 10, what does it have in yours? Minas mm -hmm. or something like that. Minas says pounds in the old King James and says, go, you know. And so uh, in verse 16, one person said, hey, it had gained 10 more. One, he invested one and got 10 more. And another one invested one and got five more. And then verse 20, what does he say? Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. A handkerchief, just such a old-fashioned form of financial story. <laughs> yes. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Mm. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. <laughs> For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, <laughs> and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Okay, we can stop there, but it's an awesome story. Very similar story, but it's a little bit different with the way there were 10 servants and they're given one each. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's not exactly the same story, but you have three people who respond. One got 10, one got five, the other one just wrapped it in a handkerchief, and and then the, the, the uh, master was very, upset with him for not earning anything on it. What is going on here, friends? Isn't it a little, doesn't it kind of rattle you? I mean, this is what, I was just going along in my life, just enjoying myself, and suddenly it hit me like, wait a minute, what's going on there? You should have gotten interest on the money. Because I, I knew there were these, you know, the same is true in other religions. In, in Islam, there's a very big thing about no, no interest, you know, and then they have these special bonds and various different things that, you know, financial instruments uh, because of this is a very important rule. And there's been a lot of, you know, different religions and so on over time that have these kind of rules. It's unquestionably important, like a lesson to take away from this would not be, oh, it doesn't matter how you behave or treat other people financially. There's pretty strong lessons in there about, hey, you should be a decent person, you know, uh, treat, treat people well and all that. And yet you don't expect those parables in the New Testament that are chiding. And they seem like, aren't they? Because it says in that Matthew 25, it says the kingdom of heaven is like this. So the master kind of has to be the Lord, isn't he? You know, so how is the Lord saying in one place, I don't want you to charge interest. In another place, I wish you had gone and earned interest, you know, uh, because that would have been better. Okay, so let's attempt to say something about this. Okay, uh, okay, let's go after the, the, the core of it right now. That um, Swedenborg's explanation is so fascinating to me. I just don't get tired of reading his works. His interpretation that always takes my head to someplace I didn't expect or, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Oh, wow. Oh, that's really interesting. And the way he explains these two different sets of stories, I don't know that he ever deals with them all at the same time, 
but he'll deal with the, with the ones that say interest is negative in one place, and he'll say in other passages, he'll deal with the business about interest being positive. And what he says is that the, um, uh, that, that Old Testament interest, see, he says that there's a deeper layer of meaning throughout scripture and this is what makes the word holy the fact that it's multi-layered and something from deep within comes down into the text even god himself is present in some way in the text that divine love is present in the text and so it may have superficial apparent contradictions but there's really no contradiction when you see it inwardly because it's singing the same song it's just just doing it in different ways or different verses of the same song so what is this Old Testament interest that we are not supposed to charge people, particularly if they're part of our people or they're the poor and so on? What is that? Well, Swedenborg has a beautiful, um, I want to call it a riff. That might be too lowly a word, a disquisition perhaps. Uh, but he has a wonderful thing about uh, that what this interest means, what he's talking about there, those Old Testament passages that are negative toward the charting of interest, are actually about your doing of good to others. And the whole point there is actually what we read in the New Testament about lend expecting nothing in return. In other words, don't do, doesn't it say in the New Testament, don't do your acts of charity be, be seen by people, don't blow a trumpet or, hey, I'm fasting, look at me, or, you know. Uh, when you do good things, so that whole category of lending money and helping people is stands in in the text for the doing of good to people. If you do that in order to earn interest, that's a spiritual picture of the doing of good to others where you are looking for some payback. You're doing it for some benefit that you're going to get. Oh, well, I'll, I'll do this nice thing because they'll, then they'll owe me or I'll do it because I'll get this or this will, you know, or something like that. And the beautiful um, essay that Swedenborg writes about this in a number of different places is that he says that when you have a worldly or carnal mindset, it's kind of unfathomable. The only thing you can think of is that every single thing you do from morning to night should be something, what's in it for me? You know, there should be something like, why would you waste your time doing something if you're not going to benefit from it? You know, what, what's the point? And he says that when you look at it from that carnal mindset, you can't even imagine what the Bible is talking about, the type of love that it's talking about. But the type of love that it's talking about is doing good uh, for its own sake. The reward, we have this tendency in us, don't we, from an early age to, well, what, I, I want a reward. Uh, but the reward that the Lord wants us to get from the doing of good is that we had the ability to do it and we had the opportunity to do it and we did it. That's it. Paid in full. Paid in full. You got to do it. That was your reward. Oh, but I want credit. I want my name in the papers. I want, you know, I, I want it to be, no, I want my, you know, a plaque or get a nice something, a gift in exchange or silver platter would be nice, perhaps an engraving or, you know, no. 
the, the reward that you get is that you had the ability to do it, you had the opportunity to do it, and you did it. That's heavenly reward. That earthly mindset doesn't even know what you're talking. I don't, why would you get out of bed in the morning to do that? And yet what the Lord is trying to teach us here in a coded way in the Old Testament is that that kind of doing of good actually destroys your spiritual life. Like if you're looking for a benefit and everything's all about me and I have to, you know, so sure, I'll do something good for you as long as, oh, can we get it covered by the press or something? You know, uh, no, uh, you're supposed to do good uh, and not look for anything back. Uh, it's just a state. Swedenborg says the angels don't want credit. And if you try to give them credit, they just, oh, oh, interesting weather. Did you hear about the weather? You know, they just try to change the subject because it kills the whole thing if it's about them being on a pedestal because of their great good works that they have done. You know, it's not about that. It's just you got to do it. You help somebody, anybody, you know, help your neighbor. Don't be looking for that return. Oh, yeah, I, I did that good at 6%. It's not bad these days. You know, uh, no, that's not what it's about. So it is its own reward. And it's a long, it's an advanced spiritual state to get to that point where it just is its own reward. We have a lower self and our lower self just always wants to add it up or at least have the right to complain because it took so long to do it and it was so hard. And, you know, and so at least you could get sympathy. I mean, that's some kind of reward, right? Uh, but no, <laughs> the Lord just wants you to do it and enjoy doing it because that's really where heavenly bliss lies in that selfless act of just like, boom, maybe they don't even know who did it. Whoop, you sneak off, you know, and it's done. And you just have a warm feeling in your heart. That's what that Old Testament interest is about. So what about that New Testament interest? What was that thing? The people took it like they were chided for taking these talents or minas and wrapping them in a handkerchief or digging them into the ground. Well, Swedenborg says that's about quite a different scenario. What he's talking about there actually is that the talents that you're given are truths, they're teachings. And digging a hole and just burying them you know what the hole is, what the ground is, what the handkerchief is? It's your memory. It's sticking teachings in, file it in your, okay, file it in your memory. Good, understood. I now have that in my memory, you know? And what the parable is saying is like, no, I am not the least bit excited about the fact that you tucked that in your memory. Congratulations, but that does me nothing. I want you spending that. I want you using that teaching to do good to others. To Oh, wait a minute. Are we in the same topic again? Huh, interesting. You're supposed to actually use the teachings to do some good to other people, to live by them. Because if you're trading with them, if you're doing things, you're living by those teachings. Wow, look at what happens. You get just as many talents back. You get started out with five, you get five. You start out with two, you get two. And at the very least, you ought to just at least phone it in, do a little something, give it to the bankers and get a meager interest back on it. Because if you just stick it in your memory and never do anything with it, that's useless to me, says the Lord. I, I didn't come into this world to give you something to just park in your memory 
and never take it out on the highway and, and drive it, see what it'll do. These teachings are meant to be lived. So, you see what I'm saying? The interest in the New Testament is kind of intriguingly the opposite, like they accord more than you would ever think when you look at it from the outside, because they're both about the doing of good. But one that says do good and expect nothing in return is like do your good, but don't do it for a payback. But the New Testament one is, hey, take these teachings and live by them because that will give you, that'll give you a reward. I'm not talking about a reward for your lower self or that you get credit or something, but you'll get the reward of actually doing something with this. And that's the interest that you get from the bankers in the New Testament. How am I doing? Okay. Starting to make, it, make a little bit of sense. I find that really, really interesting. And so the poor, the, the, who are your own people and so on, uh, that's about the, the doing good to, to people and not expecting anything in return. Now, okay, to say a little more about just sheer finances, so I don't do a bait and switch here. Um, yes, our financial life is important, but the Lord did not bow the heavens and come down into this world to reveal to us whether we should use a fork or a spoon when we're eating chili or jello or something, you know. That's kind of up to us, you know. And there are a lot of things that are up to us. Swedenborg says that um, there are spiritual laws, there are moral laws and so on. But things like business laws are like clothes that you can change. Now, in the 18th century, they changed their clothes twice a year or something like that. But, you know, <laughs> but still, it gives you an idea, <laughs> especially in the winter. But the, it's, in fact, Swedenborg said at one point that when he changed his clothes, all his spirits didn't recognize him, didn't know where he was, because uh, they've been so used to that other set of clothes he'd been wearing for months. Um, but you can, you know, it's like, yeah, that stuff changes over time. What an acceptable, what is usury? Well, that's an illegal rate of it. Well, that changes over time. You know, what, like what's a lot or what's a little, what's unbearable, or what's, what's crushing people or whatever. It's not that there's not real harm that's done through the charging of interest. Some of what goes on in, in the name of finance in our world is completely insane and crushing people and everything. Uh, definitely in, in violation of these spiritual principles. But Scripture did not come into this world to tell us. You know, I'm just thinking suddenly of that New Testament statement where someone comes to the Lord and he says, make my brother pay me my inheritance. And the Lord says, who put me in charge of you? You know, he won't answer. He won't, he won't deal with it. Um, the Word did not come into the world to say, oh, you know, 4% is okay, but 5% is getting ridiculous. Uh, you know, it, it didn't, it's not on that level. It's trying to tell you what your attitude should be inside. It's not that that doesn't matter, but the important thing is how are you relative to the idea of reward and merit? How are you doing in re relation to just simply taking teachings and, you know, putting them to work in your life at all? That's what I'm talking about in whatever system you are and whatever you know uh, civic laws and so on are operative where you are I'm interested in the spiritual part of it 
what is it that makes the word holy? And what do we do with these contradictions? The contradictions, I like the way that the way Swedenborg unfolded that, it comes out to really pretty much a similar thing about the doing of good to others, and they're quite compatible with each other. They're not two opposite crazy-making teachings, but we had to dig inside them, had to get beyond the idea that this is a certain interest rate on money that you loaned out uh, to get to something more spiritual in order to see that. What makes the word holy, and it is holy all the way down to the literal meaning, but what makes it holy, Swedenborg says, is the presence of these inner layers of meaning. What makes it holy is that this book, unlike any other book, I think, is designed to connect us directly to heaven. Swedenborg says this mind-boggling thing, that they have Bibles in heaven, but they read very differently there in correspondences, and they're not talking about worldly interest rates or stuff like that. They are talking about whether you do good to people and, and, and what are you doing when you do that? How, what's your approach to that? And Scripture is designed to unite the world. The worlds used to be more united in the past, but they fell out with each other as we became more and more sort of corporeal and insane. And so um, uh, the Scripture is needed to reconnect us so, so that when we are reading stories about interest, the angels with us are thinking about the doing of good, whether we're in tune with that or not. It helps if we are in tune with it. We can think more of the types of thoughts that angels are having. But it's not absolutely necessary. What's really necessary is that the two worlds are linked, yoked together through this connection. Uh, you know the difference between like tic-tac-toe and then three-dimensional tic-tac-toe? Like it's a very different game or three-dimensional chess or something. Very different kind of game. The word is a three-dimensional, multi-dimensional text. So you might think, oh, it's written so weirdly or why does that contradict that? Well. It's doing a lot of things on a lot of different levels. Give it a break, you know. It's doing a lot of different things. And so it is, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's uh, written in such a way that it works on many, many different levels at once. And the more we come into an angelic way of thinking and feeling, uh, the more it aligns us with heaven and brings heaven more and more consciously present with us. And ultimately, what makes it holy is, uh, what does it say in the book of Revelation about Jesus? He alone is holy. What makes it holy is that the Lord is present in the text at its inmost levels. He is present in all kinds of things everywhere, finances and all kinds of other stuff and human dealings and all that, but he's most present in the qualities of love, and truth. That's, that's where he lives. It's spiritual and heavenly love and truth, that's where he lives. And he is present in the text. I don't know whether I got it across, but how I would relate it to the Lord is that the Lord's concern, you see it in that New Testament story, you feel in a different way his urgency about what you didn't invest it. You know, like when you really understand what he's saying, it's like you knew something and you didn't practice it. What? You wicked and lazy servant. And what it really means in the inner meaning is not that the Lord is all angry and he's going to cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. It's really that he's very concerned that if we're so self-centered, we tuck something in our memory, we never do anything with it, and we live our evil, lousy lives, 
uh, we're going to roll into the other life. And unfortunately, we're going to have any truth that we do have taken away from us, and it's going to be given to the people who already have the most, because it would only be damaging to us. It would make us smell bad in hell, and we would get attacked by other people. So take that away. Give it to the people who have more, because they'll be able to do good things with it in heaven. And it's really the Lord's mercy crying out and saying, please don't end up in this situation. I hate it when, when, when people do that. I mean, you can do it if you want, but I hate it. Please, you know, so he sounds all angry and everything like that, but he's really pleading with us to live by the teachings that were given and to treat other people well. So, in closing, the word is holy because it is spiritual and connects us with heaven. It contains inmostly the mind and heart of God himself. And yes, it gives us principles for our lives, but it's not primarily about external things like finances. It appears to be, but it's really much more about these deeper things of love and how we treat one another. Thank you for your kind patience, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Didn't help you with your taxes a bit, but there it is. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You bowed the heavens and came down into this world, Lord, to show us your mind and your heart. Thank you for this glimpse of your heart and your mind in your word, Lord. Thank you for the amazing teaching. It baffles us. It puzzles us. But when we dig through, sometimes we can see your face. We can feel your beating heart in the text, your great love for others and your desire for us to join you, to enter into the joys that you have in loving others. We thank you, Lord. Our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It'll be good.